Today, we enter into some of the most beautiful Christmas passages of the Bible. And, of course, God judges everybody. Welcome to Daily Gospel, equipping you to know God through His Word and His Son, Jesus Christ. My name is Keith, and this is Brandon, and we are pastors here in Santa Cruz, California at Gospel Community Church. Remind you guys to like, subscribe, and comment. That gets the gospel out and helps us as a church. Um, Brandon, what book are we in today? We are in the book of Isaiah. Oh, my oh, We're going to be in it for a while. Get comfortable, people. This is a big one. Big one. Do you want to tell, tell everyone what um, wonderful things I introduced you to this morning? That you did not, you were not aware. Oh, of. well, not aware is a relative statement, oh, okay. but generally not aware. <laughs> generally aware. How about that? <laughs> Classical uh, music? Uh, no, the Handel's Messiah. That's what we're talking about today. Classical music. Oh man, yeah. I was I was prepping this morning, getting pumped on some Handel's Messiah mm-hmm. while I, cause I hadn't listened to it in forever. But uh, while I prep for these passages, because it's all about these passages, Handel's Messiah, you know, and it's just yeah, just really feeling. Amped and ready to go, but I, I was surprised it. Keith did not. He he knew he knew the Hallelujah chorus, so I'm thankful for that. I don't, I don't know how you could have missed that one, but yeah. Can you give us an example of that chorus? Uh, okay. Hallelujah, yeah. Hallelujah. Oh yeah, yeah. That's that's great. It's great to sing. Unlike you though, I didn't grow up listening to classical music in my study with my leather bound books <laughs> and things like that. So my rich mahogany. Yes. yes. Chair. Yeah. It's true. Mm. It's true. Uh, yes, but uh, these are some great Christmas passages we're going to deal with today. Great. Well, Christians think that Christmas September passages. we're dealing with Christmas. Yes, that's true. Yes, yes. because Christians are right. Yeah, <laughs> that is true. So we're going to get into this, but we're actually entering a whole new, we're entering kind of the last major section of the scripture, right. of the Old Testament, I should say, right. to clarify. So we're getting, we're getting closer to the end. So if you are still reading, um, praise God for you. That's awesome. <laughs> Isaiah and Jeremiah are really like these two mountains you got to climb. Isaiah is just so, I mean, there's so much rich, richness and depth and beauty. Um, Jeremiah is also amazing. I mean, it's God's word, but it's, it, is, it is tough. Yeah, it is, It's the longest book in the Bible by yeah. word count. It's going to be tough. But once you get past that and maybe you know, a little more of, of Ezekiel, then it's kind of, you're, you're <laughs> starting to coast. You know, yeah. you're getting so close to the end. So keep on, uh, stay strong till the very end. And there's some, there's some really interesting, uh, fascinating, and beautiful things in this last section of scripture. So we've been, we've seen how the Bible's broken down, right? The first five books are law. Then we saw 12 books of history. Mm-hmm. And then we saw five books of uh, wisdom literature. And then guess how many major prophets there will be? Mm-hmm. It's either five or 12. So you only have two <laughs> options, five. <laughs> and then there's the minor prophets, which is, yes? Uh, it's your 12. chance to shine. Yes, 12. <laughs> so 5, 12, 5, 5, 12. It's very easy that way. Um, I know you've all got it now. So five major prophets, they're called major, not because they're more important, but because they are, um, they're bigger in, in size and scope, really. And then the minor prophets are the, the 12. They're known as the 12. They're actually one book in the Hebrew Bible. So we'll go through those as well. Um, now, as we get into the prophets... We're dealing with, yeah, these, these figures that are helping. They're kind of throughout the history of Israel, mm-hmm. right? And they're helping Israel to understand what God's word is, right? A prophet is someone who speaks for God, um, delivers God's word to the people, and has really a sort of a confrontational role very often to confront their sin, to confront leaders, to confront priests that are misled or sinning. And so there's certain themes we see in the prophets. There's a few that I'll just lay out for you that I actually get from Paul House. 
So these are some themes in the prophets. One is divine inspiration. So their words are from God. So when a prophet speaks, he speaks the word of God. So that's one big theme, that they are speaking kind of on behalf of God as the mouthpiece of God. We see that the theme of divine election, mm-hmm. this theme that God chose Israel for a purpose. But then we also see the theme of Israel's sin. So again and again, the prophets are going to bring up, Israel, you've sinned, and here's the specific ways that you've sinned. Right. We're going to see a, a big theme of divine judgment. That's probably the most famous one in the prophets because it's so it feels so extreme in our culture, right. and uh, it's such an important one. And so it's emphasized a lot. But also we see divine compassion. So not just judgment, but also compassion and salvation through that judgment. Mm-hmm. And then the final theme that we'll see is complete renewal. So the prophets will speak to the complete renewal of God's creation in the end, uh, ultimate salvation, resurrection, things like that. we got to fly in here. What the heck? Mm. Um, so those are those are the kind of big themes from the prophets. That's awesome. And like, you know, you know I hear the word prophet and I think of like money, um, that too, you okay. know. But I think of like a fortune teller or a uh, future predictor of events or something like that. Like, how does that play into the the prophets? Yeah. So not everything the prophets say are speaking to the future. A prophecy could just be a, a word from God, really, right. you know, telling God's word. But also they will look to the future. So most of them do look to the future, look to future events uh, as a vindication of their word, and ultimately to the final end of humanity. So definitely mm-hmm. they're looking forward to that uh, final consummation of all things. Right. Awesome. So we've talked generally about the prophetic books. We're going to get into those, but we're in Isaiah right now. So what's Isaiah all about? Well, the prophet Isaiah, uh, his name means Yahweh saves. So he's he's going to focus a lot on the topic of salvation. Great name. Great um, name. He's known as the royal prophet. He actually may have, according to the Talmud, they claim that he was related to the kings of Judah. So he mm-hmm. was uh, a, a cousin or something of King Uzziah. That's the, that's the claim. And he had a long, uh, a very long ministry, and he died, according to tradition, by being sawn in two by, I believe, King Manasseh. What a legend. Yes. Um, so Manasseh, he was rough. a good one. Yeah, he was, he was rough. Yeah. yeah, he was rough. Uh, he, so Isaiah lived sometime late 8th century, early 7th century B.C. It's kind of his time frame. Mm-hmm. kind of spans that. And he lives in Jerusalem. So he's prophesying to the people of Israel and to the people, people of Judah. And, uh, you know, like most of the prophets, he'll talk about judgment and salvation. But really, you have sort of the whole story of Scripture in the book of Isaiah. Interesting. How, he how covers so? kind of everything. Yeah. <clears throat> so he's going to look at um, the, the supremacy of God. Well, some of the themes here I should, I should point to, some, some of the themes. Because Isaiah really is central to theology. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've looked at the importance of a book like uh, Exodus or Deuteronomy, books that are really underrated. Even, you know, Second Samuel with, with chapter 7, very central in terms of biblical theology. Isaiah, though, really stands apart. I mean, it is in, incredible and massive in terms of its weight. Mm-hmm. And a few of the chapters we'll look at are just, they, they really are mentioned all over the New Testament. Right. So uh, Isaiah brings out many themes that we had, hadn't been brought out in Scripture yet. Some that have been hinted at but haven't been directly talked about. Mm-hmm. So so some of the things that we see, we, we see an emphasis on God the Father, right? So, so God as supreme and sovereign. There are some incredible texts about God's sovereignty in the book of Isaiah mm-hmm. that we'll look at. We there's a big emphasis on monotheism. Whereas right. a lot of the a lot of the previous books, they're all monotheists, um, but they speak in terms of idols and the power of these demonic forces behind idols. 
Isaiah's real emphasis is on, no, there is no God but Yahweh. Right. He's the only one. So he's kind of showing the reality that those gods are not only false and, and weak, but they actually don't exist at all, in a mm. sense. So we'll look at that. We, he uses the term again and again, the Holy One of Israel, to refer right. to God. Yeah. So that's his, that's his most common phrase for God. And, um, and it's not used very often in the rest of scriptures. It's, it's like a half dozen times in the rest of the Old Testament. So mm. this is a, a theme that's really common for him, and he's going to see a vision of God in chapter 6 as holy, holy, holy. So there's, these are big themes that have been shown throughout scripture but are, are really brought to a head in Isaiah. We see his focus on the Son, the second person of the Trinity. We see a big focus on the Messiah. Mm-hmm. Many, like I said, many of the crucial prophecies that we think of when we think of Christmas come from Isaiah. Right. Uh, the virgin birth. Um, some, yeah, some, we'll look at a few of those today. And later we'll see this theme of the servant of the Lord, starting in chapter 40. This figure, this mysterious figure who is the Messiah mm-hmm. and who gives his life for his people, right. who is a substitutionary sacrifice for sin. Yeah, the Redeemer. So, I think yeah, so this, I mean, this is, yeah, this is a really, really big idea in the book of Isaiah. And obviously, it's a key idea in the whole scripture. Right. So he's bringing like the Davidic covenant and showing how it's going to be fulfilled in this mysterious figure that, that we'll sense. see in Christ. It's kind of cool. I feel like we're jumping back into the the, the bigger story of Scripture here. I've, you know, the wisdom literature kind of dealt with it a little bit, but I feel yeah. like we're actually getting right back into it again. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We'll see an introduction to the Holy Spirit a little bit more, things mm-hmm. that we haven't seen with the Holy Spirit, and his view of salvation, that there's going to be a second exodus, that there's this remnant chosen by grace that God's going to preserve through judgment mm-hmm. to, to bring to salvation. And then some of the really, I think, unique things at this point are his view of eternity and ultimate salvation yeah. of heaven and hell. He brings um, some really clear pictures of heaven and hell yeah. and of the, the resurrection and yeah, of the new, new Jerusalem, Jerusalem yeah. new heavens, new earth. All these things that have been hinted at, like we saw a lot of that in Job, for example. Right? Yeah. A lot of, there has to be some resurrection, there has to be some hope beyond this life, but Isaiah really lays it out pretty clearly. Right. And a lot of what he says will be used almost verbatim in Revelation 21-22. Yeah. So he lays a foundation for that as well. So incredible book, incredible book. So I know it'll end with a really um, kind of scary note. We'll get there in a few weeks, but it's it's an intense ending, but it's for a certain reason. So we'll look at that Very when cool. we get there. So how's, if we're going to like make sense of you know these 60-plus chapters, how are we going to uh, organize it? What's an easy way to think through the organization and structure of the book? Yeah, there's not really an easy way. Yeah, I, I've, I tried really hard to think through this. I mean, kind of the easiest way to break the whole book down, and it's easy for me. It's easy if you know the books of Scripture, right? Like Cause chapter 40 or something. Yeah, so there's, there's 66 books in the Bible, and there's 39 Old Testament books. 27 New Testament books. And so in a very weird in a very like weird weird coincidence I guess in history it kind of broke down that way cuz <laughs> the the chapters are they're just made up by someone. Someone just said this right. will not be new chapters. So it's not like these are inspired, but chapters 1 to 39 of Isaiah somewhat correspond to the old covenant. They're, they're more focused on judgment whereas at the 40th chapter with the last 27 chapters, there's this turn, and it's much more focused on salvation. So it kind of feels like New Covenant. That's easy to remember. And it actually does sort of take place in the future, looking to the future. So For sure. So yeah, and then within those, we'll, we'll kind of break it down. For this section that we're going to deal with today, chapters 1 to 39, we're going to see in the first five books, judgment on Israel. And then we're going to see in verse, chapters 6 to 8, the ministry of Isaiah. So it'll be some narrative portions introducing Isaiah's ministry, his relationships to these kings. And then in 9 through 12, 
we'll see prophecies of the coming of the Messiah. Yep. So that's what we'll deal with today. And then it's going to be a lot of judgment, basically, <laughs> through the rest. Uh, I mean, judgment with a lot of hope, you know, throughout, but a lot of judgment until we get to the There's definitely some 40. strong language from Isaiah. Yes. He doesn't hold things back, so... No. Babies getting dashed on rocks and stuff like that. <laughs> yes, that's that's true. I shouldn't yeah. laugh at that. No, you shouldn't. No. That's very. I'm a terrible person. Yeah, yeah. So 40 through 66 is new covenant focused, future hope, and all that. That's right. The good, the good that's stuff right. that you know. Yeah, we'll see the servant of the Lord prominent in those in that last section, and then new heavens, new earth kind of ideas in the in the final section. So we'll we'll break it down more for you as we get into it. I don't want to give you like the entire outline verbally because then it's just gonna. Yeah. But yeah, the first few sections are focusing on judgment, Isaiah's ministry, and the Messiah that's to come. We'll get into it. We have four. Well, yeah. We have four weeks in Isaiah, so we, we're going to give a lot of time to this book because it is that important. So let's just start here, chapters one through five. You guys okay. ready? Let's do it. I'm going to get some water here because I'm going to need this. Ah, uh, yes. All right, let's jump into chapter one. So the first section, like I mentioned, chapters one through five, is judgment. A judgment against against Israel and God's call to them to repent. Mm-hmm. Which again is sort of the, the whole book, but uh, but let's let's look into it. Okay, so we see the beginning. The first verse introduces Isaiah and his ministry in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings. Of, so you, his ministry spans a number of kings. I love, how, I love oh. how he just starts out by saying that oxes and donkeys are uh, more knowledgeable than the people of Israel. That's right. Verse 3, the ox knows its owner, the donkey, its master's crib, but Israel does not know, my people do not understand. Yeah, so he starts off with this, he's just going on and on about how <laughs> terrible they are, right? Yeah, and even an ox, even a donkey knows who its master is. Yeah. My people haven't, haven't have forgotten me. It's, uh, I mean, it's terrible, And right? this, is, this, is, this is pre-Babylonian exile, right? That's right, yeah, yeah this, that's right. So they're facing Assyria at this point. And they're afraid of the the coming Assyrian army. Yeah. And he's saying this is this is bad. I mean, and it's not just that they're they're sinful in part. He says in verse five, the whole head is sick, the whole heart faint. Mm-hmm. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there's no soundness in it. Right. So what he's saying is they are completely sinful, head to toe, inside and outside. Mm-hmm. They are are ruined. Right. And and God hates their false righteousness. We see this in verse ten. He's, he goes on to talk about the the, the offerings they gave. Right, verse eleven. What is what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Um, verse fourteen. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They become a burden to me. <laughs> verse fifteen. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Mm. You have blood on your hands, and so you're coming to me. Praying, acting as if you are true followers of mine, but I hate that because it's empty, it's hypocritical, it's false. Yeah. So, so you know, verse sixteen: Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good. Mm-hmm. Stop, act, stop doing all these things that are outwardly righteous when inside you hate me, right. you disobey me, and you hate other people. Right. So he's he's confronting them. He's saying that your leaders are evil, you're evil, you're completely sick. Mm-hmm. So what's the answer? Well, God wants to in this book offer forgiveness. This book is about Yahweh saves. The Lord is salvation. Right. So how is he going to do that? Well, verse eighteen he says, "Come now, let us reason together," says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Mm-hmm. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. That's great. Super encouraging. 
Yeah, God is offering forgiveness. God desires to reason with them, to offer forgiveness to them. That right. is his heart. And yet, he, but he says, verse 19, if you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. And we've heard language like this already in the Old Testament, before all the wisdom literature. I mean, obviously, Isaiah is going back to that time. We're looking back in, in that moment. But yeah, we've heard this language all throughout the Old Testament of if God's people are obedient to him, they will have life in him. If not, there's punishment, there's wrath. That's right. So I love, even if it's so, it's so encouraging, um, in verses 18 through 20, you get to verse 21, it's talking again about the unfaithfulness of uh, God's people. It says, verse 21, how the faithful city has become a whore, she who has full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murders. Yeah. Wow. Just awful, yeah. And so so God is going to punish, God is going to, to judge, right? He says in verse 25, I'll turn my hand against you. Mm-hmm. Smelt away your dross as with lye and remove your alloy. Mm-hmm. And I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. So judgment and salvation are going to come to a head in Jerusalem. Yeah. So that's this kind of setting up for the rest of the book in chapter one. Mm-hmm. Very heavy stuff. <clears throat> but he's also... Isaiah is also always looking to the end, to the final salvation. <clears throat> so we see this in chapter 2, where in verse 2 he says, it shall come to pass in the latter days, the latter days being, well, really the time that we're in now, the time after uh, the resurrection and ascension of Christ, right, the death, resurrection, ascension of Christ, that the time that's coming toward the end of history, mm-hmm. that's we're sort of in this period called the latter days, and he's, he's speaking to the very end of that, that in the latter days the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and, will be, and shall be lifted up above the hills. So there's going to be this restoration of, of uh, Zion. It's going to, he's going to change sort of the, the way the earth looks, hmm. right? The surface of the earth in some sense to elevate Zion, obviously in importance. But it's also a reminder to us of, of Eden, which was a mountain, right? It was a watershed, the Rivers flowed out of Eden, right? So it was this this mountain that was the central place of communion with God, this place of life and beauty. Zion is going to become that. It's going to be the, the highest place hmm. uh, in the land. So he's he's looking to the the end, and then he's talking about the peace that's going to come to them. Where they verse four, really famous passage: They mm-hmm. shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up a sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. So God's going to bring peace to humanity. That's that's the ultimate day that he, end that he looks for. Yeah. And that, that's super encouraging, right? I mean, yeah. it, it, and you always see this kind of encouragement from God in the midst of judgment. You know, there's always a hope that God gives. There's always an out, you know, and yeah, there's a remnant, obviously. The remnant is a huge theme through Isaiah, right? Yeah. So. And, and just a side note, don't do this. Don't do that now, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, our, our nation should not take their weapons and turn them into, <laughs> yeah, you know, right. uh, tools for, you know, yeah, recreation. Don't, don't or, be a pacifist. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, you can choose not to fight yourself. Right. But as a nation, you have to defend yourself against evil. And a lot of people, I think, want to get to that utopia. Um, that's funny. The, the word utopia actually just literally means no place. <laughs> utopia in, in Greek, no place, meaning because there's not a place that is, you know, a right. utopia. It's 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 elusive. We can never get to it. But a lot of people think that if we just were to stop being violent, you know, now if we just were just to stop 
having war, stop retaliating, whatever, you know, and I'm not saying every American war is good, but that, that philosophy of we just have to, you know, be at peace, even though there's evil that wants to destroy us is, is ridiculous. Right, yeah. He's, he's going to change the hearts of people. And that's the issue, right? The, the war can't cease and utopia can't come because there's sin in the human heart. Yeah. And so until that is vanquished from earth and the earth is made new, there's not going to be a peace where there's no need for war, right? Yeah. So, no. so anyone who tells you that they have a way to utopia, apart from God, first of all, run from them. Communism. It's going to be terrible, yeah. yeah. Anyone who says that they can do that without changing the human heart is yeah. a complete fool. There's yeah. no system we can put in place to, to create that. Exactly, yeah. So, so God's plan in all this is that he would be exalted, verse 11 of chapter 2, the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Mm-hmm. That's what he's looking for. Verse 12, the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. So the day of the Lord is coming. This time of judgment is coming where there's going to be, yeah, judgment against those who hate God, mm-hmm. and he's going to bring peace on the earth. So... A lot of a lot of things in here, you know, judgment, final salvation. We're sort of seeing some of the big themes of the book brought out, um, and then chapter three, that judgment that's going to come is going to be against God's own people. Mm-hmm. So this, I mean, th- this is it's some intense words in chapter three. Like for example, it's going to be this is how bad it's going to be. It says in verse chapter three, verse six, a man shall will take hold of his brother in the house of his father, saying, "You have a cloak, you shall be our leader," and this. Heap of ruins shall be under your rule. <laughs> this is like how my kids play, right? Like we put a blanket on one of them and they're the king and then they have a bunch of blocks and that's their king. Like this is like, this is how devastated the world will be. That somebody has a cloak. Whoa, this person's rich. This yeah. person's powerful. Uh, you know, it's it's mocking, but it's, it's speaking about how terrible this day will be. Mm-hmm. We see the same thing in, in chapter four, verse one. Seven women shall take hold of one man in that day saying, we will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. Mm-hmm. So women will, you know, want to marry the same man just so that they can be saved from the disgrace of of the death and destruction that they've has come upon the world. So it's um, yeah, it's it's a very tragic picture here. But there's a there's a a hope that comes from this figure in chapter four, verse two. It says, "In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful." And glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. So, there's this. We we know later this branch of the Lord. This is a, is a person, right? This is messianic language. We'll see later, but there's going to be something that arises that brings hope to the survivors. Verse three: He who is left in Zion and and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. <clears throat> They'll be called holy. How will they be called holy? How will an unholy nation? Be called holy, right? Something is is going to change drastically because of this, and it's because as we see in verse four, cleansing comes from God. Mm-hmm. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst, so there's a, a picture of cleansing coming from God that will make His people holy. So we're starting to see hints of future salvation and what it will look like. Yeah, that's awesome. And then, you, I mean, right after that, it's just really cool. You get imagery of of the Exodus, right? Of God dwelling with the, his people, which will create over them the sight of Mount Zion and over his assemblies a cloud by day and a, and a smoke and shining uh, of a flaming fire by night. For all the glory will be uh, a canopy. There will be booths and shade and day and heat for the refuge and shelter from the storm and rain. So God's going to be, yeah, with his people. That's right. That's awesome. That's right. 
chapter five is sort of a real change of of pace. It's a really interesting, like abrupt change mm-hmm. where he starts to say, he says, let me sing a song for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. So he goes, starts to talk about his beloved, how his beloved had a vineyard and he planted it. He dug it out, right? He talks about all this care that he put into it. He, he built a watchtower to guard it. He got hewed out a wine vat. He was ready for a harvest from this vineyard. So he mm-hmm. took a lot of care and time. But in verse 2 says, he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. That is like nasty, yeah. disgusting grapes, worthless grapes that you can't do anything with. Yeah. And so he's talking about this vineyard, and it's, it's very strange. Like, what is he talking about? And he starts to ask the audience, right? What should I do to my vineyard? Verses 3 and 4. What should I do to it if I, I thought it was going to yield grapes, but it yielded nothing? It yielded disgusting grapes. And the answer is tear the vineyard down. Mm. Destroy it, right? Do something with the land other than wasting it on these plants right. because they're worthless. And so still we don't know necessarily what he's talking about, right? Verse 5, I will remove its hedge. It shall be destroyed. I will break down its wall. It shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed. So what's he talking about? Well, verse 7 clues us in, right? For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts. So he's not talking about just any vineyard. He's talking about God. That's his beloved. Mm-hmm. God is the one who has the vineyard. Right. And the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of, men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. Mm. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So God came... He planted all the care he gave to Israel, taking it from one nation and planting them in the land, protecting them, giving them everything they need. And yet when he came to look for what he required from Israel, which is justice and righteousness, there was nothing. Injustice, disgusting bloodshed, all this. And so God is going to judge them. God's going to tear them down. So these are harsh words. And we're going to see this theme of the vineyard later on in the scripture, in the Old Testament, and of course in the New Testament as well. Right. Very important. But the vineyard often refers to Israel. Mm-hmm. refers to Israel. It's a picture of Israel. So he goes on in the rest of chapter 5 with these woes. Uh, we don't have time to get into all of them, but verse 18. I, I, love, I love this. I mean, how much does this 18 and following sound like our culture today? Mm-hmm. Right? Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes. So he's saying, you're dragging around like a burden, the sin that you can't let go of. Right. Who say, let him be quick, let him speed his work, that we may see it. Let the counsel of the whole one of Israel draw near and let it come that we may know it. So God, show yourself. If, right. if God's really real, he should, he should judge us. He's not judging us. He's doing nothing. Right. Verse 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Right. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Mm-hmm. I mean, woe to those who would say that something is the exact opposite of what it is. Right. Does that sound like any any culture you can think of that would completely invert the truth? No. That's what we do all the time, all the time, <laughs> you know, and in ways that are so absurd that everyone knows the emperor has no clothes, right? right. Look at the transgender movement or whatever. Right. In the name of love, we will actually encourage someone in harming themselves and being... Uh, and believing something false about themselves. You right. go, I mean, you go through all kinds of issues. Right. right. You get really controversial. But it shouldn't be controversial. Yeah. That should be the most obvious thing in the world. But woe to those who completely disregard the truth right. and invert everything about reality. Yep. So, I mean, yeah, really amazing words in this passage, very strong words. But it's leading us to 
chapter six, mm-hmm. which we got to get to. This is so important for us to touch on before we we have to end this section. We're going to get chapter six and then some prophecies. We promised Christmas passages, so we're going we're gonna to do that. Yeah, we got to get all the way to nine, I guess, right? No, we're going to twelve, man. Oh. We're going. We're going. Yeah. No, I mean the Christmas passages. Oh, yeah, 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 seven and nine. Yeah, yeah. seven and nine. <clears throat> chapter six, though, Isaiah has this vision, right? So. It, it, verse 1, In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. By the way, high and lifted up. Don't forget that phrase. Okay? File that one away. It's like a song. File that one away. Yeah. So the king is dead, but God's on the throne. God's reigning. And he's high and lifted up, and, and he's filling the temple and, mm-hmm. and beyond, right? And there's yep. these holy creatures, the seraphim, verse 2, that are praising him surrounding him. And what they're saying in verse 3 is, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Mm. So you have this threefold repetition of holiness pointing to the ultimate perfection of God's holiness. Yeah, He is He is, He is. is so holy, perfectly holy. And the, the whole earth is full of his glory. Well, is the whole earth full of God's glory? I mean, I would say currently, no. Right. That's that's part of you know that we see in Isaiah that God's trying to fill the earth with His glory, so he's he's a vision probably of the future, mm-hmm. but he's overwhelmed by this right. That there's the foundations are sh- uh, the thresholds are shaking, and at the voice, and in verse five we see his response. He says, "Woe is me!" So all the woes we saw from in last chapter we didn't look at all of them, but woe, 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 meaning. You're condemned. You're dead. You're you're you know cursed. Whatever, he's saying that to himself. Woe is me. Right. I'm doomed. Right. For I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of Hosts. I, Isaiah identifies himself with those who are going to face judgment because he realizes that he too is sinful. Right. No one's no one's excluded from God's judgment because we are sinful. So, is there a solution for Isaiah? Well, yeah, in verse 6 and 7, we see Isaiah's salvation, that the angel, the seraphim, comes and brings a burning coal from the altar, touches it to its lips. Ouch. I had, I had someone ask me, like, Is this, would that hurt? <laughs> yeah, that would hurt. That's the I don't point. Know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, his sin, and it says, he says, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. So there's, a, there's an answer to sin that God has. Right, refinement, and, yeah. Yeah, and, right. and Israel needs the same thing that Isaiah got here. So. Yeah. But this idea of the holiness of God mm-hmm. and His glory and, and filling the, the earth, so important for the rest of the book of Isaiah. For sure. That's what God's going to be doing the rest of the book of Isaiah, is pointing to His glory and how that will fill the earth, mm. culminating in the new heavens and new earth. Right. So don't, don't forget that. Awesome. And then we see Isaiah's mission in verse 8 of chapter 6, where he's, he's told essentially, go and speak to these people, but they won't listen to you mm-hmm. because they're blind, they're, they're deaf, they, they will not listen to what you say. And so Isaiah says, well, how long should I go about doing that mission, God? That seems like a tough mission. And mm-hmm. he says, essentially, until everything is destroyed. Um, so it's, it's, a tough, it's a tough mission, to say the least. Right. It's a very dark mission, but Isaiah is to preach to people who will not receive his word. Right. Um, there's still hope, though, even in that, in that, you know, even in chapter 6, you know? Yeah. You know, and though I, you know, verse thirteen, and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, and uh, like a, I don't know how to say that, terebinth, uh, or an oak. I don't know what kind of tree or thing that is. Whose stump remains when it's felled, the holy seed is its stump. That holy yep. seed. 
It's pretty cool. So something's going to spring out of the destruction, the judgment. Right. That will bring, that'll be an answer. Yeah. It's kind of like branch imagery almost again. Yeah. yeah no. Absolutely. That root oh. of Jesse, that, that, uh, yeah, that branch, that all those things are images of the Messiah. Right. So in chapter seven, we see actually a clear prophecy of the Messiah. Right. So Isaiah is sent to Ahaz, who's in fear because of Syria coming against him. Mm-hmm. And Isaiah's message is to not be afraid of Syria. So Isaiah comes with yep. his son, Shir Jashub, whose name means a remnant shall return. Yep. Yeah, names and, mean a lot in Isaiah, right? Yeah. So we got Manuel coming up, I guess. Right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, Isaiah tells Ahaz to ask for a sign of God, right? Verse 11, ask a sign of the Lord your God. And Ahaz says, I don't want to. I won't put God to the test. So Isaiah rebukes him. And he (laughs) says in verse 14, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Mm -hmm. Of course, Emmanuel means God with us. So a virgin will conceive, give birth to a child who will be God with us. Right. So when you are in your worst place, God will send a savior, a redeemer, mm-hmm. um, to rescue you from that punishment, a son of salvation. Right. In chapter 8, a son is born to Isaiah. Some people think this is the fulfillment of Isaiah 7, 14, right? The virgin birth here. Mahershal um, hashbaz Mahershal al-Hashbaz. <laughs> Great name, man. I wonder what, his, wonder what his nickname. He had to have a nickname. That's way too many syllables to not have a nickname. Just hash, maybe baz? I don't know. Anyway, uh, his name means uh, hasten the spoil, hasten the spoil, or you know, speed up the, the yeah, spoil. I guess of war, and some people think this is a picture of salvation, but really the idea here is Maher Shalal Hashbaz is born not as a sign of salvation, like the the child who's born of a virgin in chapter seven. Yeah, because this 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 son is not born of. A virgin, right? Well, that's that's one thing. Some people yeah. think like, well, she was a virgin and then she wasn't and had a kid, right? So, well, people say like something about Mary, I guess. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like yeah. She, <laughs> she, yeah, like day one, virgin. Like a year later, now having a kid. Like uh, it's, it's not really any miracle there. So I don't know why that's. So that's one thing is I don't know why that'd be, be miraculous, but also this this child Maharshal Hashpas is a picture of judgment. His, even his name in, indicates, right? Right. He's a picture of judgment, not of salvation. This is not God with us, uh, not in the good sense. This is God with us to destroy us. So that's not a very yes. good, that's <laughs> not a very good uh, prophecy. So the son is born to point to the fact that there will be this judgment coming. And then we have to get, of course, to chapter chapter nine. Sorry, we're kind of going speedily. There's so much to cover, so we're just going to go a little speedily here. But chapter chapter nine, verse one speaks of the land of Galilee. There's going to be a light in the land of Galilee. Look at mm-hmm. verse 2 of chapter 9. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness on them, a light has shone. So there's going to be a light coming into the northern region of Israel, into Galilee, mm-hmm. which there's this guy who spent a lot of time in Galilee named Jesus. Right. So this is clearly a picture of him, and it's actually explicitly, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. You are, yeah. We'll talk about that in a second. But Verse 6 of chapter 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Here's your song. That's right. This is the song. <laughs> Handel's Messiah right here. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. 
on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Yeah, that's clarity that we haven't seen about the Messiah before. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's. I mean, it's a lot that we could talk about here. I think it's really funny. Of the increase of his government, there will be no end. That sounds terrible, right? <laughs> but of the increase of his government and of peace. So it's not right. an oppressive government. It's a government right. that is unlike any human government that gives freedom and joy and life to yeah. people. Yeah. This is the true king. So he's pointing to the light's going to come through a child that is born, hmm. whose importance exceeds any other human. Right. To be called, I mean, to be called everlasting father or prince of peace. I mean, to be called mighty, mighty God. God. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, counselor is also a name for God. All these things are, they're pointing to God himself mm-hmm. as being this child, which makes no sense at this point in history. Right. But Isaiah is leading up to who the Messiah will be. So we see more talk of God's judgment in chapter 9. Chapter 10, we see just an incredible picture of God's sovereignty over evil. Yeah, It's one thing to say God is sovereign over goodness, over his creation, that he's powerful. But it's another thing to say that God has control, even over even those things that seem to be in rebellion against him right. or are in rebellion against him. God is still in control. And we see this in the picture of the king of Assyria, mm-hmm. who's spoken of as a tool of Yahweh. Mm-hmm. God's in control of him in chapter 10. Verse 5, woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Hmm. Against a godless nation I send him. Against the people of my wrath I command him. So Assyria is going to conquer the northern kingdom of Israel, and God is saying, I'm in control of him. Right. I'm sending him for this. And it's not because he's thinking, that he's not, he's not consciously knowing that God's in control. Right. Verse 7 says, he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think. But in, it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. So he's not trying to honor Yahweh. Mm-hmm. He's trying to get glory for himself. But God is using even the most powerful evil person in the world at this point right? for his purposes, for his glory. That's sovereignty. For sure. They, he meant it for evil. God meant it for good. Absolutely. Yeah, same things. And then, yeah, it just, you know, it's, it's and it's pretty devastating to realize you know, in God's sovereignty, in his plan, in his loving plan, it still as brutal as it is. Verse 19 of chapter 10, the remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. The amount of people of, of Israel that will still be will be so few that a child can write them down. Yeah, That's crazy. But there will still be a remnant, right? There's yeah. still hope, which is really cool. There's so. something interesting here, too, and it talks about the words of the king of Assyria in verses 13 to 14. Mm-hmm. Where he says, my hand, verse 40, my hand is found like a nest, the wealth of the peoples, and as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken. I just I just remembered mm. there's a really famous inscription written by Sennacherib, mm-hmm. the king who is speaking right. here, yeah. where he says almost that exact same thing. Hmm. Right? He talks about how he had surrounded Jerusalem and they were like a, a nest. Um, it, I forget the exact name of the inscription, hmm. but it's, it's incredible, incredible. Uh, alignment with what we're talking about here. Crazy. That he surrounded them, but he didn't actually, it kind of implies he didn't actually conquer them, but it's written in very, you know, self-flattering language. But, but he, you know, verse 15, right, shall the axe boast over him who hews with it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You're a tool. You're boasting against (laughs) me when I'm in charge of you. Yeah, sovereign God. Yeah, unbelievable passage about God's sovereignty. Verse 11, we see what the Messiah is going to accomplish. We see what this what the Messiah is going to accomplish in his ultimate reign. 
So there's going to be verse mm-hmm. verse one of chapter eleven. There will be a shoot from the stump of Jesse. A branch from his roots shall bear fruit. That's again yeah, that Messiah language. This imagery, you know. And verse five: righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Verse six: the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the lion, and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. So there's going to be all these animals that should be killing each other that are dwelling together in peace and safety. Yeah, the, or even the lion shall eat straw like the ox, even their habits yeah. <laughs> are different. So this is a return to Eden. Right. So that the Messiah is going to bring a return to Eden, and the ultimate reality will be verse 9, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Mm-hmm. So it's this root of Jesse, this this shoot, this branch that's going to bring in this new Eden and he's going to lead a new exodus. Verses 15 and 16. The Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt, will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath. And at the end that says, and he will lead people across in sandals. There will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of, of Egypt. So there's going to be a deliverance from Assyria, mm-hmm. from these new oppressors, just like there was from the previous oppressor, Egypt. Right. So anyway, incredible, incredible stuff. Verse 12 is also absolutely beautiful. Um, but we that's kind of all we can discuss for today. Yeah. Kind of sets us up for what's the rest of the book. Big, big ideas in this in this section of scripture. Yeah. So briefly, how does how does the New Testament? I'm sure you guys can already make connections already to the, the New Testament gospel. But how does the gospel give us? Uh, how's the gospel seen in these passages? And yeah, I'm. I'm yeah. Hopefully, if you've been watching with us, you know, for a while, hopefully at this point you're saying, I know like 20 I can point to right already. I mean, exactly. this so is not hard already, at all, yeah. right? Yeah. The vineyard idea from Isaiah chapter five. Uh, clearly, I'm sure a lot of you thought of. Jesus in John chapter 15, Mm -hmm. right? Where he says, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. I mean, this is straight out of Isaiah. Right. And what he talks about in this passage is that being connected to him as the true vine brings life. Now think about this. The the vine or the vineyard in Isaiah 5 was the people of Israel. Right. It was the nation of Israel. But here Jesus is saying, I'm the fulfillment of what Israel was. And so by being connected with me, that's how you can live in honoring God, be the true people of God, and find life. Right. So he is saying that he's the fulfillment of that. Mm-hmm. So, and we'll see a lot more of this in the rest of the book. Um, Isaiah chapter 9, where we see um, this talk about you know the light dawning, as I mentioned, the light in the land of Galilee. Well, Jesus spent most of his time ministering in Galilee, mm-hmm. in the north of Israel. And we see in Matthew chapter 12, this exact, or sorry, Matthew chapter 4, this exact same passage being quoted. So that Jesus starts to, to preach in Galilee and that's to fulfill what Isaiah had spoken. So that's Matthew 4, 12 and following. Mm-hmm. Or Isaiah chapter six, where we see this, this picture of the people being blinded to the reality of God, right? right? That they don't wanna see, they don't wanna hear. Matthew 13 um, says this is a fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah. And Jesus quotes them. He says, this is why I spoke to them in parables, because they can't see, mm-hmm. because they can't hear, and it's to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah. So these people who think that they are so righteous and so good right. are really blind. Mm-hmm. So, and then, if, and then, of course, the virgin birth. Obviously, that yeah. one is yeah. pretty obvious. That's low-hanging fruit. <laughs> but even, I, I love this one, Isaiah chapter 6, where we see the, 
the glory of God revealed. In John chapter 12, verse 39, um, he, the, the, the writer of John quotes from Isaiah. says, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart in turn, and I would heal them. Okay, so we know that from Isaiah. But what he says next is unbelievable. He says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Mm-hmm. So whose glory did Isaiah see in this revelation? According to John, Jesus. Right. It was Jesus' glory. Yeah. That, I mean, that is massive. So anyone, you know, maybe you've heard from Jehovah's Witnesses or, or Mormons who would say that, you know, Jesus is just a created being. He's a God. He's not, he's not the God. This is clearly, I mean, I don't know anyone who would say Isaiah 6 is not referring to Yahweh, to the true God. Right. And here John is saying clearly right. that that is Jesus. So, uh, so much from these sections, so much about the, the birth of Jesus and his role as the Prince of Peace, the counselor that is fulfilled in Scripture. Um, yeah, time is not enough to talk about all those connections. No, but amen to the, those ones. It's amazing, yeah. and it gives us great hope as Christians. So that's all we got for today. Thanks for joining us for Daily Gospel. We'll see you next week as we continue to look through uh, the book of Isaiah.